Hey everybody, welcome to the Game Changer series. We've been talking about this incredible group of people that changed the world from the book of Acts. And last week, my goodness, it was Mother's Day. I don't think I've ever seen such wisdom and depth of insight come from a person who's so beautiful all at the same time. That was fantastic, the Game Changer's redemption. But today, it's about the Game Changer's habits. And to talk about habits today, I'm entering into a blacksmith shop. And I got my buddy over here, Sean Crane from Semicolon Crafts and Forge Works yes, to sir. talk to us today about habits. Now, Sean, let me ask you, what are the best habits of somebody who does blacksmithing? What do you, what do you do? What do you repeatedly do all the time that makes you such a great success at it? It's really comes down to repetition on the fine details and the groundwork. Mm -hmm. Getting used to how you hold a hammer, how you hold it at what angle, where in the handle you hold it, how close you get to the anvil. Repeating those basic things over and over and over again will end up giving you a much more sturdy foundation so you can put your mind into more complex things. Yeah, and you had told me before that when you have good habits with what you, with what you do with your craft, it just makes everything easier. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Certainly. Getting into... The groundwork, knowing how all of your details lets you focus on the minutia, like how if you, a hammer going from straight up and down to say 20 degrees at an angle, yeah. goes from having a piece that's going to be flat on one side and the angle on the other to forming a point. You end up going twice as fast by just turning your hammer 20 degrees uh, a little, little bit in the hand. It's the little tiny things that compound together that once you go do them again and again and again, you end up getting into that habit, into that body mechanics, into that memory, and having everything work under it and everything work together to end up with a beautiful piece at the end. That's fantastic. I should have had you preach the sermon today, Sean. That is great. Those habits, that mental memory, that muscle memory, you do things consistently, do them the right way, just makes everything better. It makes everything easier, as Sean was saying. You know, uh, Sean, there is this saying by Edwards Deming that it's not enough to do your best. You must first know what to do and then do your best that makes it work. And when you were talking about doing things the right way and those little differences, like if you get, if you repeat the right things over and over again, then you get the beauty. Mm -hmm. Then you get the freedom. That's what it made me think of. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming and bringing all your great stuff that we're going to see here today. It's fantastic. Really emphasizes the point about the game changers habit. Habits. So we're digging into Acts, this incredible book that talks so much about the history of these game changers that we've been talking about. So Acts 17, they turned the world upside down. How do they do that? They did it through habits. When you think about how powerful habits are, these four habits that we will talk about today, they changed the world. They impacted our lives, even to this day. Every time we go to the doctor, what they did changed our lives. Every time we go to a pharmacy, get the COVID shot. It's on our passport. It is on our driver's license. What is it? It is the date of birth that we have. It's 2021 of May. 2021 of from what? From Jesus Christ. He split time in two. But it was the habits of this small group of people that were so committed to these four powerful things that actually caused that to happen. We wouldn't have had time split in two if it wasn't for these four habits. What were they? Well, they're listed to us in Acts 2.42, which is really a summary, a summary statement of who they were. This is what it says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's one, 
They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's two. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. That's three. And they devoted themselves to prayer. That's habit number four. And this is what we're talking about today. So everybody, history shows us that we have somewhere inside of our hearts deep this passion to be game changers. And Jesus talks about that passion when he says that we are called to be salt and light. What is salt and light? Salt and light are transformation agents. Light transforms the darkness. And so Christ is saying we have this desire inside of us. How is that desire going to come out? How is it going to be fulfilled so that you and I experience that wholeness, that fullness that we desire. It's going to come out through great habits. Either it's going to be great habits or bad habits. So here we go. Here's habit number one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So point number one is this. Your source for your success. What is your source for your success? Listen, the only thing worse than doing something that totally messes up your life is doing that same thing repeatedly. Cookie dough. Raw cookie dough is my source for failure. I give into it all the time, right? I mess up. I need to have a habit or something that's going to help me to avoid it. So Krista the other night was going to make chocolate chip cookies for my son. And I thought, oh no, here we go again, because I just have this bad habit of giving into it. So I go over, she's making it, and I dip in, and I get some raw cookie dough, and I'm like, oh man, that tastes good. But I, it wasn't really enough that I could really taste it, you know what I mean? So I, I got to have a little bit more, so I dig in for a little bit more, I'm like, that wasn't enough either. So I take a big, huge clump of it, and I have that raw cookie dough. And now I'm starting to feel, oh, but it was so good, but I'm starting to feel not the, not the best. And she always makes a couple sheets worth. She'll put the first sheet in. She'll bring it out. She got the hot cookies. Then she'll put some more raw cookie dough on the next sheet. And I help her do that. And I sneak a little bit more, makes the next cookie sheet. And then when it's all over, after she has two cookie sheets and we have to kind of clean up, I just take a spoon and I just dig out as much as I can get. And about an hour later, I feel terrible mentally, physically. I feel bad. I need something that's going to help me, that's going to like pour into me. Like as the Bible says in the 119th Psalm, that God's word, this teaching that they focused on is like, pouring truth. And as it says in Psalm 119, it's like pouring iron into our souls. What is going to help me to give me strength that's going to boost me, that's going to be that truth? Well, that's what they chose. And you and I can choose the same thing. We can pour iron into our souls. We can dig in to the source of truth, the teaching of God's Word. There's a really, really important verse in Joshua 1 Eight And this, it talks about our success, your success, my success. This is what it says. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according that is written in it. For then you will make your, for then you will make your way prosperous. You will make your way prosperous. How? And then you will have good success. How? The teaching of God's word. 
The word for teaching, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the five books of Moses, is the same word that is used for teaching. Teaching means Torah. Torah means teaching. They devoted themselves to the iron, to the strength of God's word. And it helped because there's so much everybody going on in this world. We read so much on the internet. There's so many voices in our own head and there's so many voices outside of our head. And we wonder, how am I going to get through the fog of falsehood? There's like a constant drizzle of deception that goes on in this world. Which path do I choose? Which one actually leads me to success? We've been talking a lot about Proverbs 14, 12, that great proverb that there's a way that seems right, but it's a dead end. How do I discern? How do I clear out that fog of falsehood? Well, it's the Bible that puts that iron down in my soul that helps me to understand. You know, my mom got this thing. It's this little handle and you, you, you put it on the car door, right? It just locks it, a little shorthand. You put it on the car door and it's like when she goes to get in the car, it's like a boost. She just clips it in there, this little handle, and she just boosts herself right up into her car. We need a boost. We need something stable, something that's sure and certain. That's God's word, and that's what they devoted themselves. And if you and I devote ourselves the same way, it will boost us into the place where we want to go. And this is what they did. Psalm 119 verse 104 says that God's word empowers me to stay on the right path. Now remember, they were followers of the way. We've got to discern what is the way and your habits what you do repeatedly over and over and over are going to put you down a certain path. Clear, simple. So much study done on that. So we have to choose the right habits that we're going to follow. John chapter 8, Jesus Christ says this, the truth will set you free. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Truth is that stable thing in our lives. This is what we must follow. We must pour truth into our souls. Second Timothy 4.3 says, the time is coming when people will not tolerate, endure sound and wholesome instruction, but having itching ears for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? That we have a desire to hear things. They might not be true, but they make us feel good. They, they, we will like it. We want it. It's not based in truth, but we like it. Now, Blaise Pascal says it this way. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Everybody, that's a recipe for absolute disaster. Now, I have spoken about this recently. I just want to draw from this again because I think, again, it's a good point. The fog of falsehood, the drizzle of deceit. There was an article written. You can understand this and I can understand this. The article has gained so much traction in the LA Times that godlessness in America is growing and that is a really, really good thing. People are running from the church. They're running from the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. It's not a source of truth. That is gone by the wayside, but America and the West 
are doing so well. We're happy, healthy, and wealthy, and we're secular. And our growing secularity, up, 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 and yet we're happy, healthy, and wealthy. So why in the world would we want the Bible? Why in the world would we want the truth? What does it matter? And this professor who writes this article makes a great case. It sounds good. Why in the world would the game changers in the book of Acts why would they embrace God's word of truth? Why does it matter? How is it going to change things if we're doing so well? And here's where, again, we have to clear away all that stuff to figure out what the truth is. Now, the reality is, everybody, and you can read, a Harvard professor has written a book uh, a lot about this subject right here. His name is Eric Nelson. He's a Harvard professor. He wrote a book called The Hebrew Republic. And basically... The ideals that led us here in the West to have that political ideology that we love so much that set the stage for us being happy, healthy, and wealthy came straight out of the truth of the Bible. He also draws in this point that China and Russia, which were totally secular but were miserable places, the only reason they didn't have happiness, healthiness, and wealthiness is because of religious toleration. They, they, weren't, they weren't tolerant of religion, but we are in the West. Again, where does religious toleration start? Where did that idea come from? It came from the Bible. So we have to be very careful that in our desire for success, our desire for happiness, fullness, healthiness, and wealth, all those things, that we don't run from the very thing, that we don't create a habit that is causing us to run as fast as... Will Durant, the great historian, would say it this way, we are living off of the fumes of those ideals from God's Word, from the Bible. Now, we need to make a transition into a different point here, something that we've been saying all throughout this series. Don't read the Bible. The Bible never tells you to read the Bible. You're to study the Bible. There's a famous scene actually in the book of Acts where God speaks to Philip. He says, I need you to go out to the desert. Now, Philip's in a town. And he's talking to a bunch of people. And God says, I need you to go out in the middle of nowhere. So he does. Go out in the middle of the desert. And there's this chariot going down the road. And there's a guy in there in that chariot. He's from Ethiopia. He's been to Jerusalem. He's a worshiper of God. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And God says, hey, Philip, go over and get next to that chariot. So he does. He hears him reading the book of Isaiah. And he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand? He says, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it? So he says, Philip, why don't you join me here in the chariot? He didn't know Philip, but he's, hey, join me in the chariot, right? Join me. Here. So he explains it. And the guy gets it. He's like, oh, wow. It's all about understanding. Shakespeare, even the devil cites scripture for his own purposes. We can twist and turn and misunderstand scripture and do great damage with it. Stop reading the Bible. It was never meant to be read. It was meant to be only studied. We need people who can take us deeper in God's word. We must get into the context. When you do like they did in 16th and the 17th century, you have this Hebrew Republic, Professor Eric Nelson. You have the ideals that lead to happiness, healthiness, wealthiness, and religious liberty. And if you don't, you're going to miss out on that. And that's what they gave themselves to. And that's why things radically change. Everybody, there's beauty in God's word. It's just so often misunderstood. It's so often twisted and turned. And you're never going to get it by a surface reading. Now, listen, one of the things I hear when I talk about stuff like this is, well, wait a minute, John, are you saying 
Man, I got to study like that. I can't just read it. I mean, that's hard work. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's hard work. This is hard work. Everything great in life <laughs> doesn't come easy. It comes by hard work. So Sean made this knife and he had to put it in fire. Like a couple thousand degrees worth of fire and then twist this and turn it. Like, you just don't make this without having to put some effort and some heat, some serious heat into it. You're going to have to put some serious heat into understanding these great truths if we're going to have a great change. Albert Einstein said this, thinking is hard. That's why so few people want to do it. This is hard. We're talking about equality, dignity, freedom, big stuff, right? We're talking about game-changing stuff. It ain't going to come easy. It's going to be difficult to come by. They devoted themselves to God's word and that is your source for your success. Okay, so habit number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It's a word in Greek, koinonia, actually means teamwork. Your team is your success. If you have a great team, you're gonna have great success. Now, I'm gonna go really short on this point because we've talked a lot about this before. The best teams are diverse teams. They can be frustrating, It'd be frustrating to have somebody who has a different perspective, particularly if that perspective is radically different than yours. It can be really frustrating, be problematic, but it's really helpful. It's like the book was written by Doris Kearns Goodwin, right? Uh, team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln. Rivals, rivals, a great team because it, it had all these perspectives. Now you think about this. Jesus prays all night before he selects his team, his disciples. And then he goes out and he selects Matthew, the tax collector with Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot had taken a pact because he hated, though he hated Rome and Matthew's working for the Romans. He wanted to kill Matthew. And yet Jesus puts these people with two radically different perspectives on the same team. Here's the thing. If we can get to the point where we can, as I said a few weeks ago, see the image of God in the other person, not just ourselves, and figure out a win-win, then that team can be powerful. On a football team, not everybody's the quarterback. Not everybody plays offense. Some people play defense. Some people play special teams. A team is made up of this whole diverse thing. And if you can figure out a way to get along with people who are radically different from you because of Jesus Christ that stands in the center of all that, presto bango. That is a great habit for success. That just works great. Now, in blacksmithing, it's called striking. You get a whole team of people together and y'all, everybody strikes it all around and you work as a team in that striking and then you make something great. You make something successful. So a great team, your team is your success. You gotta have a great team. Third habit was, is they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now this is your story, is your success. Everybody has a story, what is yours? Everybody has a story, what is your story? Peter was impulsive. Paul was angry. The woman at the well, we don't know her name, she was lonely. Everybody has a story, what is yours? Is the story you're telling yourself, is the story people are telling you really your story? Is it supposed to be your story? Is it the story that God is telling about you? Which story are you choosing to believe? I remember when my parents got divorced, 
when they got divorced, there was a story I believed about my family, not just my small little family, just a few of us, but generations, right? There was a story I was telling myself about who I was in the story of our family. And then when the divorce happened, all these other stories came spilling out, not just about my own little family, but about grandparents and great-grandparents and all that. And all of a sudden, there was this different story. I remember it rocked my world. And then, the, then, then this thing, people would say, you know what? This is the way. This is the way your family has always been. So that means this is the way you're going to be. This is your story because this is your family story. Is that really the way it is? Am I just stuck? Am I stuck in a story? Which story should I be stuck in? Is there a way out? What story are you telling yourself about who you are? So breaking of bread. When you think of breaking of bread, then you think of Jesus. Of course, breaking of bread speaks of a meal. They had meals together. But this is kind of a meal with a purpose. Because when you think about breaking of bread, you think about Passover, you think about the Lord's Supper, he broke the bread. So it's really a meal set to a story. It's almost like a dinner theater because there's this meal and then there's this story and the two of them are coming together. One, one rabbi says it this way. He says, you know what? You never can have a meal without having the study of scripture. And you can't have the study of scripture without having a meal. So a meal and the study goes together. Again, it's kind of like a dinner theater. There's this meal being had, but there's a story that's being told. And that story is rooted and grounded in hope. Now, we have said this months ago. Why did Jesus go to the cross on Passover? We think about forgiveness of sin. Why did he go to the cross on Passover, not Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is about forgiveness. Passover is about a story. It's about a story of hope where the first Lord's Supper takes place. Now, the scriptures are all about hope. I want to read this, Romans 15, 4. Listen, please, very closely. It's very important. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures... And the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, this goes back to my earlier point. If you're reading the scriptures, you might not have hope. But if you're studying the scriptures, if you're digging deep into the scriptures and they're pouring iron into your soul and you're not coming out with hope for yourself and for other people, if you don't look at your own life in a hopeful way and the life of other people in a hopeful way, something is being severely misunderstood. Because the scriptures were written, all of them, to give us hope. And this story of Passover is about hope. Now, Greek tragedies, they're famous. Very cynical. Matter of fact, from the great Greek philosophers, that's where we get the name cynics. They were the cynics. It's very cynical. And when you read these tragedies that we have for us from the Greek philosophers, like Oedipus Rex, what, what's that about? Oedipus Rex is about this story about a baby being born who would grow up and kill his father and marry his mother. And even though all kinds of provisions were put in place, that that's not what would happen. Even though his mother tried everything she could do, that that prophecy would not be fulfilled. What ended up happening? He killed his father. He married his mother. It's terrible. It's a tragedy. Stuck. You're stuck in something that's determined. When people talk about nature, they say nature is determined. Is your life determined? Is your story determined? 
Are you stuck? Is that just the way it is? I mean, we often say that. Is that just the way it is? Your life. Is that just the way it is? Are you just always going to be lonely? Are you just always going to be misunderstood? Are you just always going to be discontent, dissatisfied? Are you always going to be at a place where you don't have peace? These scriptures from the Bible know nothing about a determined life. They're nothing about tragedy. I know people sometimes say, you know, the Bible's all about myths. Actually, in reality, Bible is the anti-myth. The Bible actually brings all myths down. The mist that created in those days, the Bible was a direct missile, laser-guided missile against myth to bring down myths. And the Bible knows nothing of determination and nothing of tragedy. It's not the way it works. Now, listen, I don't know if you'll ever be happy. I don't know if you'll ever be content in peace. I don't know if you'll ever kick that habit and get rid of that addiction. I don't know if you will, but I know you can. I don't know if you will, but I know you can. And that's the story of the breaking of bread. That's the story of Passover. When Passover is celebrated, the youngest child in the room would ask, why is this night not like any other night? Why is this night different from all other nights? Because it was on this night that a group of slaves in that world 4,000 years ago, if you're a slave, you're a slave. That's just it. Like Aristotle said, hey, people were born to be slaves. It's determined. Oh, no. That's why the Bible is a revolution, because it says your story can change if you want it to change. So everybody, think about this. The Bible begins Genesis chapter four, the first act of worship, followed by the first murder, which is a sermon all in itself. But I want to focus on the fact that Cain and Abel, this sibling rivalry that you have, sets the tone So then, if it's a tragedy, then that tragedy is going to carry itself all the way through the book of Genesis. But how does Genesis end? Does it end with this rivalry going on? Are we determined? Are we stuck in that constant brother against brother? No, no. Genesis ends with Joseph and his brothers. As bad as things had been, they reconciled. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Reconciliation. Exodus starts as slaves. Once a slave, always a slave. Starts in slavery. How does the book of Exodus end? Freedom. Unheard of. A revolution. That's why the Bible is so revolutionary, because your story can change. This is what you got to know. The story that God is telling over your life in this breaking of bread, in this meal, is a story of hope and that you are not stuck You'll never be stuck and that that you want to be set free. God wants to come alongside of you and help to change your story that you might live that life that you want to live and that God wants you to live. He wants to lift you out of any pit that you might be in, any debt that you might be in, any struggle that you might be in so that you can live the life you want to live and that he wants you to live. That is the beauty of this breaking of bread. And when they came together in this habit, they reminded themselves of this story that there's hope that it would change. Peter doesn't have to always be impulsive and he changes. Paul doesn't always have to be filled with anger and he changes. And the woman at the well who was all alone and experienced deep loneliness ends up at the end of her story, the longest conversation Jesus ever had with any person in John chapter four. She ends it surrounded by people now 
who instead of rejecting her are embracing her. Your story, your story can change and it is a beautiful thing. Finally, the fourth habit. They gave themselves, they devoted themselves to prayer. This is your outlet for your success. Now, prayer. The Psalms are prayers set to music and they're a bunch of venting. There's requesting, there's venting, there's frustration. You gotta let it out. You gotta let it go. You gotta put it out there. But it's very important that you think about who you put all that out there to. I'm reminded of that scene from Saving Private Ryan where, you know, they stormed the beach at Normandy and all the bloodshed that took place. Oh my gosh, the movie was so graphic. And now they're going to find this Private Ryan and one of the soldiers is complaining to Captain Miller. It's like, why is this happening? Hey, Captain, how come you never complain? And you know what? Captain Miller says something really important. He says, you know what? You never come. I never complained to you. You only complain up the chain of command. That's what's happening in the Psalms. You're getting that frustration out. You're venting. You're letting it go. It's like the forger here that Sean has. The success of the fire is because of the release of the propane. And if you don't release the propane, then the fire is not going to be successful. You got to let it out. So you got to let out your, your frustrations and your anger. You got to let out your request and your confusion. You got to let all those things out. But here's the thing I really want to focus on. Okay. You got to let out your thanks. You got to let out your praise. You got to let out your thankfulness. And you should really do this every day. You should find something that you're thank- thankful about and you should make sure that you never end your day without saying thank you for X, Y, and Z. You know why? Super important. The lowest place on the earth is in Israel. It is the Dead Sea, and all it does is receive, it never gives. If you want to take yourself to the lowest place that you could possibly be in your life, then be a person that never says thank you. Be a person that never gives thanks and praise. Hold it all in. But if you want to be a person that you just lift yourself up to the place where both you and God want you to be, then be a person that on a regular basis has devoted themselves like the game changers in the book of Acts who have totally changed the world that you give thanks and praise. It's incredibly important. Psalm 100 verse number four, great verse in the Bible. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You enter into the very presence of God with thanks and praise. How about this one? First Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Listen, I want to, I want to end with a story and I'm, I'm afraid that this story, I'm going to say this has been repeated, uh, many times in my home. So. <laughs> We have had through the past, we lived here in my house for 20 years. We get birds in the house. And here, how do they get in? Well, they see this wreath on the door. Krista likes to put these wonderful wreaths on the door and they think it's a nest and they get in there and we open the door for whatever reason to greet somebody and in flies the bird. Now, you could just get rid of the wreath, which I've suggested, but that hasn't happened. It's another conversation and conflict. But anyway, the birds get in and I'm... I, I'm OCD. I, I admit it. Okay. I'm just going to put it right out there. I have issues. I don't want the birds coming in. It freaks me out in the feathers. And then maybe they're, 
go in the bathroom in the house. I'm like, ah, okay. It freaks me out. So I really don't want the birds. So the whole family gets involved in the process of trying to get the bird out of the house. And we use brooms. We use books. We use sheets. We use pillows. We open up doors. We're trying to guide the bird. We'll get the door, get the bird right up close to the door. It's like, he's going to go, he's going to go. And then he turns back and goes the other way. The bird desperately wants to get out of the house And I tell you what, I desperately want that bird out of the house. And I'm doing everything I can to get the bird out of the house. Now, everybody, that's what habits are. Habits are the thing that gets you where you want to go and where God wants to get you to where you want to go, right? They devoted themselves to the instruction of God's word, to teamwork, to the breaking of bread, this incredible story of hope, and to prayer, And if you implement those things over and over again, you're going to be set free. But you're never going to be set free unless you follow great habits. It's the great habits that get us there. I mean, I could say to you, hey, you're going to be a success. You're going to be awesome. You're going to be a game changer. But, you know, that really doesn't do anything, does it? You actually need something to hang on to. You need something to do. Something to put some fire behind those words. Something you can latch on to. And that's what they had. The four habits of a game changer. I hope you'll put them in place in your life. I know I'm going to keep trying to put them in place in my life because God has great things for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this um, amazing summary that you give us of these game changers lives. Help each one of us, God to put them in place in our lives so that we could be the people that we want to be and you want us to be in Christ's name. Amen.